thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And I want to ask you to use your imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine a crowd, a significant crowd. It's hundreds of people, maybe even numbering into the thousands of people. And these are people that John is going to tell us in chapter 6, verse 60, are disciples. It's a broad crowd of disciples. It's not everybody that's been present. For example, it's not everyone that was present for the feeding of the 5,000, as Matt taught us, perhaps upwards to 15,000 of people. It's not everyone, but it is a lot. It is hundreds, perhaps swelling into the thousands of people, people that have seen enough Something that clicked over in their heart or in their mind that said to them, I need to follow this guy. I need to follow this one called Jesus. But as you look at this crowd, in your mind's eye for a moment, as you look at this crowd, understand that though it's one crowd, it's filled with at least two different kinds of people. You see, this crowd is subdivided into at least two groups, spiritually. The two groups would be the saved and the unsaved the authentic followers of Jesus, as opposed to some who will only follow for a time, short-term followers of Jesus, as opposed to the lifers, those who've given themselves to Christ as whole. So one crowd, think about it, one crowd, two different kinds of people. Now, I want us to pause here for a moment, right here at the outset, and say this. As you consider this, and you put your face in that crowd, to which group would you belong? Think about it with me this morning. As you put your face in the crowd, to which group would you belong? With that, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6, please. John chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in a moment in verse 16. But as you turn, let's use our imaginations once more and go back in our mind's eye to that hillside just before Jesus feeds the thousands of people with one boy's lunch. And I want you to imagine that you are one of the initial 12. If you think about the disciples, you're one of the originals. You're one of the OGs, if you will. Imagine what you might have been feeling in that moment. And you've been with Jesus for some time now. You've seen him do some amazing things. You're convinced that he's truly the Messiah, the Son of God. But now you're seeing so many people follow Right? As you're sitting on that hillside, you're seeing people come out of the woodworks. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, like, everybody's coming. We don't even know some of these people. We don't know where they're coming from, but they're coming from everywhere. Everyone's now following Jesus. Perhaps they felt a little bit of validation in that moment. Right? Like, we were early in adoption. Right? We're pretty smart. We were one of the earliest. Everybody thought we were crazy a little bit ago. We're leaving everything to follow this one, but now everyone's following Jesus. Feels pretty good. We're a part of something big. And then, my friends, track with this, and then he feeds them all. With one boy's lunch, he feeds them all. <coughs> you're astonished, you're amazed, like 
you're having a difficult time processing how amazing this is, how awesome this is, and then just for good measure, he walks on water. <laughs> In John chapter 6, he walks on water. You're going, this is phenomenal. This is going so well. It can't get any better than this. Jesus is on top, and we're his hype men. Right? We're in the inner circle. We're with Jesus, and it's great. We're in business, and it's rolling. Right? Bandwagon's full, and there's a waiting list. And where's guys? But then something happened. My friends, then something happened that made these hype men, you can imagine yourself as one of them, begin to squirm or scramble, perhaps. Or Jesus starts saying stuff that's not playing well to the crowd. He starts bringing a message that's not really settling well with masses. Now, I think we can understand this in our culture that is dominated by social media. Right, we've seen famous people go rogue on Twitter, right? Or go rogue on Facebook, and their hype men are scrambling, right? Get him off Twitter. Right? Let us run your Twitter for you. Right? This is not going to play well to the crowd. Do you understand how that might feel? What the disciples, the original disciples, may have felt in this moment. Like, Jesus, this is going so great. Everything's going great. Why do you have to talk about this? Maybe Peter and James and John are trying to send a little subtle message because they've been watching the crowd. They're seeing visceral reactions. As Matt has taught us this through John chapter 6, visceral reactions to Jesus' message. A lot of furrowed brows. Jesus, it was going so great. Can we just tone this part down? The crowd is thinning out. My friends, understand that as we reach verse 60, the crowd is officially cool on Jesus. They have cooled on Jesus. See in the text, verse 60. When many of his disciples, again, this is a broad group, people that are following Jesus, when they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning. He wasn't surprised by the crowd turning, my friends. He wasn't surprised. He knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray. 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The language here is no longer walked 
with a degree of finality. Jesus, in this moment, is hemorrhaging followers. People are leaving in droves. The momentum is dead. Okay? If you're one of those original 12, you've been pumped, psyched out of your minds about the swelling crowds, the joyful momentum, like all of that has been sucked out of the building. The question is why? Okay? The, the answer we have to be clear on is why are they leaving? Why are these people leaving in droves? Well, look back at your text at verse 60 and 61. Something I want to make very clear right up front is this. It's not confusion. But friends, it's not confusion. This is outright rejection. It's not that these people have come to this place where they're going like, I don't really understand what's going on, and maybe they've asked some questions, and Jesus is like stiff-arming them. This, this is not what's happening at all. This is outright rejection. Know your text, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Understand that the word hard here communicates as abrasive or offensive or harsh, kind of repulsive in a sense. What they're saying is, this is offensive, and then they go on to say, who can listen to it? They're not saying who can hear it or even understand it. They're saying, who can stomach it? Who can handle this? Who's willing to abide this? So let's be very clear. This is not about confusion. This is about outright rejection. These people that are turning and walking away, they're not shaking their heads because they're confused or unclear about what Jesus is saying. They're shaking their heads and they're walking away because they do understand. Because they are crystal clear about what Jesus has been saying, and it's offensive to them. As they hear these words, they go, I can't, I can't do that. I can't sign up for that. I can't walk with this anymore. So, question, why do they hear his message as so harsh? That's an important question, right? To grab the meaning of this text. Why do they view this message that Jesus gives as so offensive? To really grab this, let's go back in our text here in John chapter 6 to verse 25. If you would just turn back, maybe one page, to verse 25 and track with this. Now, we're picking up here just subsequent to his feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on the water. This crowd of disciples, generally stated, has been following Jesus and they're trying to figure out where he went because he slipped away. He crossed the sea, now he's back coming across the sea, docking in Capernaum. Someone found out about it. Perhaps they saw him making his way to the docks in Capernaum. And the crowd comes to find him. So verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And you can just imagine some enthusiasm in the crowd. When did you arrive? When did you get here? But Jesus, he's not playing. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Any parents in here ever had their kids come to them and they're just a little too nice? <laughs> See what I'm talking about? They're almost like syrupy respectful. Perhaps some of you dads basically cut to the chase and went, what do you want? <laughs> like, how much money do you want? 
right? Jesus cuts right to the chase, right here. Jesus, when did you get here? When did you arrive back in Capernaum? Good to see you. Jesus, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. Now, again, the word signs here is significant. These are moments in which people see this is the Messiah. Jesus says, you're not here because you've seen signs that clue you in to the fact that I'm the Son of Man, come from the Father. That's not why you're here. Why are you here? You are here because you ate your fill of the loaves. And this is just one clue amongst many in John chapter 6 about why they are here. Their motivation for being present around Jesus. They wanted to take and make him king. They like the fact that he has provided for them physically. Right? These are the kind of things that they want. That's why they are here. So, what is Jesus going to say? Verse 27. He says, as he begins to double down again, as Matt told, told us throughout this section, he just keeps doubling down on the main point. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He's making it clear that what we're talking about is not a physical thing. What you need, your desperate needs, are spiritual. They are needs of your soul. He says, you need food that endures to eternal life, verse 27, which the Son of Man, express claim to deity, will give to you. For on him, speaking of himself, God the Father has set his seal. I'm God, and I can provide for your soul. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, verse 28, they prove to him and to us that they are not tracking. What they do is just ask a pious-sounding question. It's not anything related to what he just said, but verse 28, they say unto him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? Not even related. But Jesus masterfully redirects that, verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. There's only one real work or consideration, perhaps better, that you need to be thinking about, you need to be processing in this moment. And that's Belief. Trust. Repent and believe. Join me that you believe in him who he has sent. So verse 30, it gets ridiculous. Right? In verse 30, you have the most ridiculous question ever. Maybe in the whole of the Gospel of John. Then what sign do you do? Jesus says, you need me. You don't need the stuff. You don't need political power. You don't need health, wealth, prosperity. You need me for the needs of your soul. What do they say? What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? It's not a coincidence that John includes this in a section where he's just fed like 15,000 people with one boy's lunch, and he's just walked on water. Kind of a big deal, right? Kind of a big deal. And these dudes have the audacity to go, so, okay, you're saying that you are God. What sign do you do to prove that? Jesus is going to be very clear in a moment to say, I've shown you enough. They go on to say, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, like this whole thing of providing bread. This has happened before. 
As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32. Jesus then said, To them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Perhaps they are likening him with Moses. He's a prophet type figure. We know he's a big deal, and they consider him a big deal. Just not that big of a deal. Kind of like Moses, who gave you the bread. But Jesus says, as he relentlessly gets to the point, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Maybe they get it. Maybe they get it. Do you think? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread. Crystal clarity. He won't leave it. He won't leave the point. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As we will see in a moment, true believers are going, yes, I love that. I love that. Just hearing those words from Jesus, they hit my heart with such joy and fulfillment. But unbelievers shaking their head. Verse 36, Jesus says, but I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So let's be very clear. This isn't about confusion, my friends. This is about outright rejection. They are hearing what Jesus is laying down. Jesus is saying, I'm here for your spiritual needs, not physical. And I'm here from God. I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. And they're going, not really what we're here for. We're here for some power. We want to see you overthrow Rome. We're here for physical prosperity, health and wealth and all of that. That's what we want. That's why we are here. We want to see you do some of that. Perhaps they were likening him to Moses and going like Moses, who helped provide the manna from heaven. Jesus is kind of like that. He's providing bread for us, and now he's going to do what Moses did to the Egyptians. He's going to do that to Rome. This is going to be fantastic. We better sign up for this bandwagon. Let's follow Jesus. But Jesus, throughout this text, is saying, no, 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 no. No. You guys are missing it. Please focus. Please grab this. And when they do grab it, brothers and sisters, when they do grab it, they walk. Are you with me? You guys with me? When they do grab it, when they do really understand, they walk. Him being God, him being God, and their ultimate needs being spiritual, not something they're prepared to accept. So if you go back to our text, this is why he says in verse 62, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if I were to prove it right here before you? The implied statement there is, would that do it for you? And the implied response is, no, wouldn't do it. They've already seen him. Now, interestingly, he is prophesying about what he will do from the Mount of Olives. He will ascend 
to where he was before. But right here and now, this is not what this crowd is looking for. So they don't see him as divine, and they don't see their needs as fundamentally spiritual. Now think about this. Don't move past this too quickly. Perhaps they are a lot like many people in our world today that believe themselves to be Christians. But why? Because they think they're pretty good, pretty good person. I'm better than most people that I know. And I do some good things, right? I've done some of the rituals that Christians are supposed to do. I've, I've given and I've served and I've done some stuff. I'm good with God, right? Good with God. Around this section, Jesus is saying, no, you're not good with God. Because the religious system that you guys have been operating in, this is not what God set up. This is not how God arranged it. It was never supposed to be a thing about working to show yourself worthy of his grace. That's not grace at all. It was always supposed to be people recognizing, I need God. I need grace. Apart from him, I'm hopeless. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. This is what they don't get. So look back at our text, verse 65, verse that may have tripped us up a little bit as we initially read it. We can see that Jesus says here, no one can come unless it is granted by the Father, precisely because it's a spiritual thing. What Jesus is saying here is not that God is unwilling, that God is somehow stiff-arming people at the door. Jesus is declaring that the real needs of our soul are spiritual, of our life are spiritual. It's requiring a spiritual transformation for the Spirit of God to open our eyes to our need and open our eyes to the Savior. But the operative words here in verse 65, please grab this, to understand Jesus is not stiff-arming people. He's coming towards people with the message. The operative words in verse 65 are the words, to me. Dustin, why do you say that? Well, if you go back to the section of scripture we just came from in verse 36 and following, what did Jesus say there? He says there, all who come to me, I will not cast out. Right? You guys with me? Everyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. The issue here is that they weren't coming to him. And the whole discourse makes that abundantly clear. They're not there for him. They're there for everything else. Everything he provides, all the stuff, all the show, right? They're there for that. And so because of that, they totally miss, they totally miss who he really is. Now, let me just pause here for a moment before I move further and make a, a word of application here about mission. Um, as a part of our church, we are seeking to be committed to mission, to engaging our community and as God opens doors of opportunity to engage the world with the truth of his gospel. Let me just make something very clear here. This is why this text and others like it, but this is so explicit. That's why I wanted to just mention it. This is why it's so important for us to understand that mission is not only or even fundamentally 
about getting people food or like clean water. That's beautiful and it's good and those can be a bridge. Please hear me. Don't mishear me. God cares about those things. But that's not the fundamental need. That's right. It's not the fundamental need. What is Jesus saying? He's saying to the whole crowd, like, you guys are totally down with that. The whole crowd is totally good with that. Feeding 5,000 people, that was two thumbs up, five stars. It's good. We're down with that, Jesus. As soon as he brings it down to the spiritual, to say, you need me. You need me. You're lost without me. That's when the crowd wins. That's when the crowd begins to think. So we must understand that as we go to our community, which we're going to do in an intentional way here in the month of September, yes, we want to love people well with food and clothing and gift cards and things like that, and trying to serve our community as we always seek to do, but those are a bridge. That's not the end goal. The end goal is to share Jesus, amen? amen. To share the gospel the good news that they can have the needs of their soul met. They can know a life that is totally different. Totally different. They can have a hope that is eternal. Right? You guys with me? Amen? amen. Are we a little out of practice on amen? <laughs> Matt's more of a gentleman than I am. Make you give them. good to be back with you, my friends. I was a little worried, like, I'm going to forget how to do this. <laughs> but uh, what a blessing to study the Word of God together. So Jesus says his words are spirit and life. For this crowd, as they walk away, they've chosen rejection. They grumble, they walk away. And they're going to starve to death. Okay? They're going to starve to death. Ironically, having eaten of the loaves, they're going to starve. Their caloric intake is going to be fine, but the needs of their soul are not going to be met. So question at this juncture, what about you? What about you? Think about it with me. My friend, I don't know where everyone's at in this room with Jesus. The question is, are you walking or staying? Even if you're present amongst the crowd, are you walking or staying? What is this whole thing about for you? Is Christianity merely a gateway to a better life or better stuff? Is that what it is, fundamentally? Is the whole church thing a way to keep your parents off your back? A way to make you feel better about yourself? Or are you here because you know without him you would be lost? Is that why you were here? I know that many are here because you would testify, I can't make sense of anything in this world without God and his good news. This passage doesn't trouble you, it warms you. Right? It excites you. You know that the crowds are going to go away. But you're with Jesus. You look out in the world and you see brokenness everywhere. That only piques your heart with longing to see Christ known and also to know a world that is without brokenness. Amen? Amen? A world that is to come. If that's you this morning, you're in a good place with Jesus. 
You're longing for Him because you've understood that you are a part of that brokenness, that your soul is broken as well apart from Christ, that you too are a sinner in need of a Savior. You have repented and turned and trusted. When you hear Jesus say earlier in this text, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You go, hallelujah. You don't walk away. You go, hallelujah. That's what I want. That's what I fundamentally need. So back to our narrative here in this moment. We see that the crowd is cooling on Jesus. But praise God, not everyone is leaving. Some are staying. Some are staying. Check it out. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Man, what a poignant moment in the flow of this narrative. Again, be reminded of the fact that the crowds have been swelling. The momentum has been awesome. <coughs> but now it's such that Jesus says to the few, to the twelve, what about you guys? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. I love this. Maybe to help us grab this in our hearts. Think about a moment in your life in which you felt people were going away from you. Perhaps someone significant was walking away from you. Do you remember a moment in your life? Have you had a moment in which in those days someone came alongside you and said, I'm not going anywhere? Everybody else might go, I'm not going anywhere. For you it may be your spouse, a parent, friend, group of friends. I've had moments like that. It's beautiful. Beautiful thing. You feel like everyone's leaving. And someone says, not me. I'm not going anywhere. See that in this text. Because Peter's response is beautiful for many reasons. But I think all of them fall underneath this category of loyalty. It's a covenant-like loyalty that God has wrought in their hearts. That God has awakened and formed and wrought in their hearts. Peter effectively says, in this moment, we're not going anywhere. Now, remember, to really grab this, you have to understand how many people were present. This is not just a fitting of the crowd. It's, it feels like everybody's gone, right? So much so that Jesus turns to the disciples and legitimately asks, are you guys going as well? Perhaps he noticed in that moment the disciples even are getting fidgety in that room. What's going on? So Jesus says, are you guys going to leave? Peter says, uh -huh. Now, in this moment of beautiful, rugged, faithful loyalty, see the substance of it? The substance of Peter's statement. 
He says, there's nowhere else to go. To be clear, Jesus, uh, Peter is not saying, like, we're going to settle here until we find a better option or until we find a more convenient time to leave. This is not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, you're it. We have seen enough to know you are the Son of Man. You are the Son of God. Where else to go? Peter is saying, we know who you are. Amen? Amen. Come on, friends. It's huge. We know who you are. There's nowhere else to go. And I hope that's the cry of your heart. But it actually gets more than that. See the why behind this pledge? That they're not leaving? There is nowhere else to go. The why behind it, it's not empty, it's not shallow, which often happens in crowds. Am I right? A lot of times people are in the frenzy of a crowd. Why are you even here? I don't know. Everybody else was here, right? It's great. It's awesome. Peter is not like wishy-washy on this. He knows exactly why he's there. By the way, ask yourself that question. Do you know exactly why you're here? Peter knows. What does he say? Verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. Now, that doesn't just sound good. My friends, hear me? It is good. Amen. So good. Because grab this. I had not seen this until this week. Seeing this was beautiful for my soul. Grab this. Understand that as Peter affirms to Jesus that they aren't leaving, he emphasizes precisely what has caused everyone else to leave. Wow, what a statement. Why did the crowd leave? My friends, why did the crowd leave? The crowd left because they heard his word as harsh. They heard his word as offensive. I'm not down with that. Moreover, the word that they were most upset with was that Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, thinking about that, look at Peter's statement again. What did he say? We're not leaving. There's nowhere else to go. Why? Your word. This is what Peter says. Your word is eternal life. We're not leaving because we know your word is true. The word that have caused them to leave, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're not leaving. Moreover, we know you are the Holy One of God. Amen. One commentator says that when he writes throughout the book that bears his name, Isaiah, refers to God as the, quote, Holy One of Israel, end quote. And he does so 25 times. So when Peter opens his mouth to confess his faith, he unmistakably declares that Jesus is God. The Holy One is a title that could only be used for God. So Peter is saying, we believe you were, and we know that you are God. So, my friends, though the crowds are cooling, some are staying. Amen? The crowds are cooling, some are staying. Uh, staying. And so, here is Jesus' response. Verse 70. And Jesus answered them, 
Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, I, I told the guys this week at staff meeting, I really wish this passage ended differently. Like, as I was going through this, I'm going, why didn't Jesus just fist bump Peter in this moment and go, boom, you nailed it. That would have been better for me. So I thought, Or maybe even initiate a group hug. <laughs> We're together against the world. We're together. It's us versus, right? That would have been great. I would have loved that. Wouldn't you guys love that? <laughs> this seems awkward. Verse 70. Yet one of you is a devil? After that great statement by Peter? So why does Jesus do this? Why does he do this? Of course he does it for a reason. And John includes it this way, for a reason. And I think the reason is because this moment is such a definitive moment of everyone leaving is going and the few remain. Jesus wants them to know, my friends hear me, even in this little crowd, even in this little crowd, one of you guys is going to betray. So as Peter effectively speaks for the whole, Jesus makes sure to give one final warning, even one in this room. Now, we don't know. Okay, this, this is um, hypothetical here. We don't know exactly what's going on in Judas's heart. I will tell you what I think. I tend to think that Judas is not, is not already planning to betray. I don't think he is. I think Judas thinks he's there for the right reasons at this moment. And Jesus is giving a warning that provides a beautiful application for us. It's a beautiful application for us. God in love is coming to us to say, even in this room, my friends, even in this room, there could be one, there could be many that say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm out. I'm out. Because here's the deal, my friends. The crowds are going to leave. The crowds are leaving. You look at broader society. I think it's probably pretty safe to say the crowds are cooling on Jesus. Would you agree? The question is, in the group of those who claim to be disciples, to which do you belong? Those who are with Jesus for life, or those who will fall away? That's a question that only you can answer. Where are you at with the Lord? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives this warning that provides quite a summary to this text. He says, enter by the narrow gate. You can see it on the screen. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide 
and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those that are going, I'm here for political stuff, physical stuff, health, wealth, and prosperity. It's wide. It's wide. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So what about this crowd? What about your heart and your life? Stand, believe me. If you're saying that you'll stay, permit me to ask this question that I think is really important in this moment. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? The reality is that the claims of Jesus are becoming more and more, in our culture, intolerable. In a culture that claims to be tolerant, the claims of Jesus are becoming more and more intolerable to society. It's not that, it's not just that what we believe is being disregarded or disagreed with. It's being disdained. And many in our culture are saying things like, Christians are the problem. Messages of exclusivity like Jesus offers, that's the problem. Christians are a menace to society. If that comes to your door, my friend, if that comes to your door, are you in or out? Are you in or out? If your attachment to Jesus costs you your likability, you staying or going? If your attachment to Jesus costs you financially, costs you your retirement, you staying or going? What if it costs you your job or your comfort or your freedom or your dreams? You staying or are you leaving? What if your attachment to Jesus cost you your life? Staying or leaving? I hope that you can this morning immediately answer, Amen. Amen. I have tasted and I have seen that God is good. I have understood that this whole thing is not about me being good. It's about the fact that he was good for me and I'm simply trusting in him. He is my only hope in life and death. If that's you, you hear Peter's words and you're going, my heart is with Peter so much, beating with Peter so much. The crowds can go. I don't care about the crowds. I'm with him. I've seen enough. I've heard enough. I know the condition of my soul. I'm with him. No matter what, I'm with him. If that's you this morning, if that's you, you're saying amen to Peter, aren't you? Are you, my friends? You're going, this, this is phenomenal. It, it's a moment of tension, and it's difficult, right? We tend to like the crowds better. But when the road meets the road, this moment in this inner circle where the question is asked, are you really in or out? When you can say you're in, it's beautiful, right? It's absolutely beautiful. So there are some things 
that are uncomfortable for us as we look at God and his word, the question is, where does our loyalty lie? Is it with him no matter what? I hope that you and I can say with Peter, there are some things that could make me uneasy. There is an edge that draws foe more than friend. But here is my life. I'm face down below. For the Lord, if I leave, where else could I go? Some of your words will censor the seeker. Lessons of love that won't scratch any edge. But here are my hands, your seeds I will sow. For, oh Lord, if I leave, where else could I go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Holy One, Emmanuel, I believe your word will ransom the soul. So Lord, I can't leave. For where else could I go? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace. You are so good. You have been so good. Jesus, we thank you for coming, living, dying, and rising again so that we might have life in you. And I pray that as we evaluate our hearts in this moment, that you would help us to see with clarity that we're with you, that we want to feed on you, that we want to have you no matter what. And I pray that as we come to your table, you would remind us anew and afresh of the privilege and joy it is to be in you. So thank you. In your name, amen.